Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Israel says it has conducted dozens of overnight strikes. Troops are lined up along the border with Gaza in anticipation of an invasion. Hi, I'm Ian Hedemansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. There absolutely needs to be food, water and fuel going into Gaza because this is one of the worst places to be in the world right now. Our question, how are your friends and family affected by the Israel-Hamas war? I'm thinking of my brother and sister um, who were in a kibbutz, which is right next to Kfar Aza, where there was that horrible massacre. One of my closest friends, he's originally from Gaza. He uh, was in visiting his cousin in southern Israel in an Arab, Arab-Israeli village. So they were under curfew, um, hearing all the jets taking off and bombing Gaza for the next few days. The suffering in Israel and Gaza may be far away in distance, but it feels so much closer. Around the clock news coverage, the stream of social media posts, and for some Canadians, the personal ties to families in danger in the war zone. People here staying in touch by text or email or maybe unable to get through it all, waiting anxiously. Our question, how are your family and friends affected by the Israel-Hamas war? In the last half hour, hearing about the death and violence in Israel and Gaza has been hard on all of us. So in our AMA, a psychiatrist. From how to deal with anxiety to advice on reaching out to others, you'll hear answers to those questions. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from October 15th, 2023. Before we take your calls, let's get an update from uh, one of our colleagues who is in Israel. Chris Brown is a foreign correspondent with CBC News, and he was reporting from the south of Israel today. Hi, Chris. Hey, Ian. As we all know, uh, a lot of talk about uh, a ground invasion of Gaza from the Israeli military. We stand by and wonder when that will begin. Um, What have you been seeing? Well, there really is a huge military buildup. Oh, I'm driving down towards uh, Ashkelon today from Jerusalem. We saw lots of convoys, uh, some carrying heavy battle tanks, some carrying armored personnel carriers, uh, some just with logistics, fuel trucks, and so forth. Uh, Also lots of bulldozers, armored bulldozers as well. So that's just what we saw in the course of a relatively short period of time. And everyone by now has seen lots of images of tanks all lined up on the uh, border. So it is an enormous buildup, and that is just in the south here. We forget that there's also sometimes a a northern uh, front as well, or a possible one. 360,000 Israeli reservists, Ian, have been called up, and uh, they've they've not equally been split between the north and south, but they certainly are uh, reservists on both sides, and, and we really only saw a small portion of it today. Yeah. Uh, now, you were reporting from the Occupied West Bank this weekend. And, and what can you tell us uh, about the, the reaction there among Palestinians? 
Well, it is difficult for us to get into Gaza. Very few, if any, Western journalists have been able to get in, of course, because Gaza is under a siege and the borders are closed. But you can go to Palestinian areas of uh, this place. The West Bank is occupied Palestinian land. And there are some Gazans who are there as well. More than 20,000 people from Gaza have work permits to come and work in Israel. They make uh, really good money. Unemployment's very high or was very high in Gaza. So these jobs are are quite coveted. And we went to a rec center where there were um, a number of, of of these migrant workers, if you will, who are now stranded. They, they, they can't go home uh, and they've got nothing here. So they're just kind of living in this limbo. And I found the reaction really interesting. I mean, these are people who are suffering for the loss of their their family members. In some cases, they don't know if they're getting bombed, uh, if they're you know part of this huge exodus heading south uh, to try to get away uh, from, from Gaza City by this Israeli deadline. Um, but what we didn't hear, what was really notable, was any criticism of Hamas. None of these men actually said what Hamas did was horrible. Instead, what you hear over and over again was, well, this is the result of, of decades of occupation. This is, one man referred to it as a fireball coming out of Gaza. You know, too many generations of, of young men, young women with, with lost opportunities and no hope. And this is, this is the outcome of it. And there's seething resentment uh, more broadly in, in the West Bank over what they're seeing going on now in Gaza. So I think, Ian, it's, it's an absolutely combustible, absolutely explosive situation. You throw into that the fact you have a lot of settlers who have moved in illegally right next to Palestinian communities. In the last few days, we've seen actually armed gangs of these settlers going in and, and shooting Palestinians in retribution for what happened uh, in the southern part of Israel. It, it's just very, very bad, very explosive, and I would watch this area very carefully. Yeah, there's such interesting insights that you only get from, as you did, getting into the occupied West Bank and talking to people face-to-face. We're live here with Chris Brown, foreign correspondent for CBC News. The question on Cross Country Checkup today, how have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? What questions do you have for our experts? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us. Our text number is 226-758-8924. Chris, you're in Jerusalem. Now, internationally, we're seeing a lot of concern uh, for the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Um, To the extent you've had a chance to speak to people in Israel, in Jerusalem, what's their perspective on this? This is really interesting to me. I mean, this has been a week of wildly complicated uh, and often divergent emotions. On the one hand, you have very deep um, sadness, shock, hurt and pain over, over these massacres. And it's also, at the same time, you've got this you know, very widely and, and firmly held conviction that Hamas cannot continue to exist. We can't live beside them anymore. I've, I've heard this before. You also hear comparisons brought up with what Jews went through in, in the Holocaust as well, which goes right to the very core of, uh, of Israel's identity. So when the prime minister and others speak about destroying Hamas, this has really become almost, I would say, a national mission. There's total moral clarity on this point. We saw planes full of young men coming back from overseas, landing at Ben-Gurion Airport, being cheered on. That's the kind of sense of purpose that there is. And, you know, you ask about, well, what about the poor Palestinians? Well, they'll say it's terrible for them, but they chose Hamas, and 
Hamas has got to be eradicated. And, and that, to me, seems to be the, the broadly the most you know, way I can generalize uh, how a majority of Israelis feel. Yeah, I mean, your observations, you know, speak to these two solitudes and and just, uh, you know, adding all the emotion and all the death and destruction. And so you used the word combustible earlier talking about the occupied West Bank, and it seems like a, you know, it is a well-chosen word, Chris. I have one last question for you. Uh, for mm-hmm. Canadians uh, who have loved ones in Israel or Gaza, um, you've been both, I think, at, at an airport in maybe... Uh, well, somewhere in Israel uh, earlier, and uh, mm-hmm. and then in terms of Canadians trying to get out of Gaza, what, what's the latest? Yeah, so there's 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 two areas where there's uh, like a Canadian effort to get out. One is on the West Bank. Uh, of the two, it may be the easier. There's about 250 Canadians in West Bank communities. The government of Canada said today they're going to try to do an overland caravan, leaving Ramallah, going to the border at Jordan, switching into another bus, and then going on to Amman. Can they do it tomorrow? That's their hope. It really depends if the Jordanians keep that border crossing open, uh, but they're going to keep trying it every day. The real difficulty is in Gaza. Uh, Today, they actually doubled the number of Canadians or family members of Canadians or permanent residents, they said, who want to get out. It's now gone from 150 to 300. And it's not just Canadians. There's hundreds, maybe even thousands of other nationalities, foreigners, sort of stuck in that southern point at that uh, border crossing with Egypt, hoping that the U.S., Egypt, the U.N., maybe Qatar, can come to some arrangement where this border crossing gets opened long enough to get all these people out, including the Canadians. Canada really is only a tiny part, and I may even be giving Canada too much credit in that, of this big multinational operation to try to get this open. The U.S. Secretary of State was in Egypt tonight. He did sound optimistic it was going to happen. We haven't seen it yet. Well, Adrian Arsenault, Paul Hunter, um, Margaret Evans has just arrived. And Chris, of course, you two uh, have done such uh, terrific work. And, I, I, you know, here you are speaking to us live and unscripted in such a, a thoughtful way. I, I, I know you're taking calculated risks about how close you get to the conflict zone. And uh, we appreciate all of that reporting and particularly appreciate you taking time for us tonight. Always good to be on your show, Ian. Thank you so much. Chris Brown, foreign correspondent with CBC News. Coming up, we're going to have two experts, as I mentioned earlier, answering questions throughout today's show. One, an expert in military strategy, the other on the political science, the the politics of the Middle East. And our question on the program, do you have family or friends in Israel or Gaza who have been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? We want to hear from you. What are you hearing from them? What questions do you have? 1-888-416-8333 is how you get on the show. Or... Connect to us by cbc.ca slash aircheck. Last week, Helmi Farah called in to check up. Uh, he's in St. John, New Brunswick, but didn't make it onto air. We always get more calls than we have time for. Um, his parents, siblings, extended family members are all in Gaza. So we decided to reconnect with him this week to get his perspective. Hi, Helmi. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, when did you last speak with your family members? Um, until this morning, uh, I, I hear from them uh, this morning, and until this morning, they are safe and surviving. Uh, but uh, there is uh, uh, no guarantee in this war. Uh, this is, uh, or things uh, can change uh, within minutes, and uh, numbers of casualties and uh, death uh, uh, 
or dead people uh, can rapidly increase. So I heard from them uh, this morning. Are they in a part of Gaza where Israel wants Palestinians to leave, or are they in a place where it's okay to stay? Well, uh, my family is currently living in Khan Yunis, uh, south uh, part of uh, Gaza Strip, and uh, uh, this uh, part is uh, also um, a heavily targeted area uh, where uh, Israeli air forces have been uh, conducting random bombing over the last uh, eight days. So they are in the south part of uh, Gaza Strip. And what has life been like for them? I hear the reports of uh, fuel and food and most concerning, I would think, water supplies being cut off to Gaza. Uh, What effect has it had on them? So, um, um, as uh, you know, uh, Israel has cut uh, all the uh, necessary uh, um, uh, like uh, all the, the needs uh, like electricity, water, uh, food and uh, internet uh, which uh, uh, make life uh, difficult uh, for people to, to live. And uh, even uh, you hear that uh, uh, Gaza uh, or the Israeli uh, threatened uh, the to bomb the trucks that provide the humanitarian aids uh, through the uh, Egyptian borders. So uh, food and uh, all the uh, necessary needs uh, for Gaza people are in decline and uh, Israel is not allowing uh, the humanitarian aid uh, to enter uh, Gaza. And this is what I hear from my family. We're speaking live with Helmi Alfara, who is waiting to to get information about how things are, are changing in Gaza to the extent they're changing. Uh, the, our question on the program, how have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? What questions do you have? one 888 is our number on cross-country checkup. Helmi, what's it like to be so far away, to only be able to get updates from your family by phone. How, how does all of this make you feel? Well, it is very difficult and stress, uh, stressful because, uh, as I said, uh, the Israeli air forces are targeting buildings and areas indiscriminately. Everyone is at risk and uh, it is uncertain what uh, will happen next. I, I can tell you that uh, I heard from uh, my family this morning that uh, there was uh, a bombing that killed over 50 people. All right, Helmi, we're having uh, some problems with our internet connection. I, I, uh, I'm sorry about that, but I think I'm going to have to you oh, know, go ahead. Uh, yeah. And as you know, um, Gaza Strip is uh, the most densely populated area in 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 the world, and uh, with two point uh, two million people living in just uh, three hundred sixty square kilometers, and the majority of uh, these people are uh, like uh, children. And um, uh, any bombing occur uh, uh, usually occur at the night when people are asleep within uh, and uh, within the uh, densely populated neighborhoods uh, when uh, Israel uh, 
bomb one house uh, or target one house, several neighboring houses are also impacted and leading to immense devastation. Mm-hmm. All right, Helmi, thank you very much for calling us last week and uh, taking our call to you this week. I appreciate hearing your perspective on this. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I think it's important to shed light uh, on the reality uh, faced by people of Palestine. Thank you. Helmi Alfara is originally from Gaza. We reached him in St. John, New Brunswick. And keep in mind on this program, as we hear stories from family members, friends uh, here in Canada who have connections to Israel or Gaza, I'm not going to be able to fact check Um Everything people say, we hope those of you who call in, uh, you know, do so in good faith and give us the best information you have. But keep in mind, you're hearing people who um, are, you know, have a stake in this, are often quite understandably uh, emotionally, obviously connected to what's going on, and uh, and also are repeating what they're hearing from family members, right? So it's a little bit different than, let's say, talking to, to Chris. That's the reason we went to, uh, to Chris uh, at the beginning of the program to get a reporter's perspective and, you know, all his information uh, very kind of carefully reviewed before he said it. All right, let's go to uh, our next guest now. Um, and is, you know, this conflict affecting people of, of different backgrounds. Sholi Tomor moved here from Israel two years ago, and that's where most of his family still lives. And we reached him in Montreal. Sholi, Hello. Hey, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, where are your family members in Israel? Oh, okay, I see you. the people who are watching on CBC News Network can see you holding up a sign that says kidnapped. Yeah, that's Ariel. He's four years old and he was kidnapped by Hamas as dozens of other elderly children and women. Yeah. And, uh, and what, do you have a personal connection to him? Specifically not to him. Yeah. Uh, but obviously we are well affected from what's going on now in Israel and in Gaza, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I know a lot of people uh, that um, got hurt, uh, were kidnapped and were killed as well. So again, for those of you who are listening on radio and not watching on screen, uh, Sholi's holding up or was holding up a uh, poster of a child's picture and a headline that says kidnapped. Uh, you, you can, um, you know... Put that down if you want now. I think uh, the point is yeah. is is well made. Uh, so, uh, in terms of of, I, cost- I I just can't see myself uh, even though my camera is on. Yeah, okay that's now. okay. That's all right. We can see you and we can hear you. So uh, and and you can hear me, uh, Shaoli. The um, in terms of a personal connection to people yeah. in uh, in Israel, what what in terms of family or friends? Uh, tell me about that. I'll tell you one thing. You know, uh, my. Uh, grandmother uh, is a Holocaust survivor. And back in Europe, back then, um, whoever was qualified to to be able to work and was sent to the labor camps, uh, you know what they used to call the labor camps back in uh, Europe? I do not. So they used to call it Canada. Because as long as you are able to work, you're safe, Right. So they used to work to to to, to call like the, the the Jews over there used to call the, the the labor camps Canada because otherwise you will go to the gas chambers. And I ask myself, as Israeli, as a Jew who lives in the diaspora now in Canada, I ask myself after the demonstrations and the rallies I saw going on, which obviously we are in the, a democracy and everybody has the the right to demonstrate. I ask myself. Is Canada is still a safe place for, for Israelis, for Jews, for minorities? 
And I hope the answer is yes. And I think, uh, you know, the government of Canada uh, should, should, should ask that question as well. Mm-hmm. And on the personal uh, aspect, as, as an Israeli now that is well-connected and has a lot of friends and family that are affected from the situation, I feel terrible. And I can give you one example of my friend from university. Um, she had a, she have a, a one-year-old um, a baby, and her and her husband and the baby were hiding from Hamas terrorists that uh, just invaded into their kibbutz next to Gaza Strip. And they were just burned, you know. They're all burned, three of them, the whole family. And they're not soldiers, they're they're innocent civilians, exactly as the Gaza uh, innocent civilians now are suffering. Mm -hmm. So that's the feeling, that even though you are not a soldier, you are not a combat, a lot of innocent civilians just got killed in brutal ways. And are there still people who, in your um, circle of close friends or family members, who um, you are not able to reach, or are you able to contact the the people that you want to contact? Personally, I am able to contact the people I wanted to contact, but I know there are a lot of missing people. Like I scroll down my social media, and everything is missing, missing, missing faces all around. Yeah. Okay. As 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 this uh, four years old Ariel. Yeah. All right. Sholee, thank you very much for uh, connecting with us this afternoon. Thank you. And I hope uh, both, uh, I mean, I hope it will stop uh, quickly as possible with less uh, damage and, and loss for both sides. Sholee Tomor has family in Israel. We reached him in Montreal. In the next hour, we'll have our Ask Me Anything with Dr. Javid Sukera on how to cope psychologically with all the difficult news this week. Our question on the program, how have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? What questions do you have? Our phone number is 888-416-8333. Our text number is 226-758-8924. On that second point, questions you can ask. Well, we do have a couple of experts who will be with us for the remainder of the program before they ask me anything. And uh, one of them is, uh, is is Scott Clancy. Uh, he is a retired Major General in the Canadian Armed Forces, where he served as a tactical helicopter pilot. He also served as Director of Operations for NORAD, and he joins us uh, today from Coburg, Ontario. Hi, Scott. Hey, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for taking our call. We've been hearing for days now, of course, that a ground invasion in Gaza is imminent. Uh, the Israelis have made it very clear that they plan to do that. The only question is when. But given your experience in the military at a very high level, um, why, what do you think the Israeli forces are waiting for at this point? Why the delay? Well, I think that the Israeli Defense Forces are pausing for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, tactically, especially in the urban environment, deliberate operations in the urban environment uh, are very important. In other words, you don't want to go in haphazard. So they're gathering intelligence, whether that's signals intelligence, uh, you, they'll use drones, airborne space, they'll use every aspect of their intelligence that they can to be able to seize out exactly where Hamas's military positions are so that they can effectively target them. This is important because they want to delineate between civilian targets and military. 
And the second thing I think they're pausing for is also important in giving time for the civilian population to leave the northern portion of uh, Gaza. You know, it started as a deadline and now it's moved to conditions based where you hear the IDF talking about when the conditions are right that the civilians have left. And I think you're seeing more civilians defy Hamas's directive to remain in the north than you have ever before. So I think that's very important. Those are the first two things. But I also think, you know, the second U.S. carrier strike group, the USS Eisenhower, has moved into the eastern Mediterranean. And you heard from the U.S. government today that, you know, U.S. military special forces may be the ones that are used to be able to recover hostages inside of Gaza. I think some of this might be that pause as well. Take us through the challenges of a ground invasion. Uh, you, you touched a little bit on some of that, but I mean, I, I feel like urban warfare is a particularly diff- difficult kind of warfare, especially if you are the, the, uh, the force that's not defending, but trying to move forward. It absolutely is, in, And, you know, we think about warfare, think about the advance in technological uh, elements for, for weaponry, standoff capabilities we can strike from with high precision at further distances, these types of things. In the urban environment, much of these things are negated. Uh, you know, in open conflict, you can protect tanks specific ways, but once you get up close inside of these streets, then, you know, a single fighter with an anti-tank weapon at very short distance can can take out all of your armor or significant portions of it. Therefore, you're clearing, you know, street by street, house by house. And then there's the vertical element to this and that, Every street is a huge cavern uh, where, you know, you, you could be struck from all around. Uh, the, this is also going to be complicated by Hamas's tactics in the urban environment. So you have the normal stuff of urban warfare, and now you have an enemy that, you know, just shrugs off the laws of armed conflict. It doesn't identify itself as a military force. It doesn't wear uniforms. It, it hides itself amongst the civilian population and uses them as human shields. And a lot of these airstrikes you're seeing is a result of them using houses, mosques, schools, hospitals to launch airstrikes on Israel. So Israel is literally striking back at them. So again, draw on your experience as somebody who, you know, was fairly high up in the command structure of the military, not in this situation, but, you know, you, you can imagine what it would be like. What kind of uh, directive can the Israeli army give its forces if they're moving in into a situation where they're, the combatants on the other side aren't wearing uniforms? How are they going to, for example, distinguish between civilians and, uh, and, and, and military people? This is the exact kind of thing that the uh, Israeli defense forces and most occidental militaries have been facing, you know, pretty much since 9-11. And I would say since uh, the war in 1982 in southern Lebanon for the IDF you're going to have to rely on those things that present themselves as a specific threat. You are, you have a weapon, then you're a threat. Uh, you know, the, the types of things that we wouldn't be able to identify a normal combatant with, do you have a bomb underneath your, uh, your jacket or, you know, do you have a grenade in, in your pocket? Th- these are the things that are going to even further complicate those, uh, those things. And I think that the deliberate nature of the IDF to move forward, which means very slow. When I say deliberate, I mean slow. That's what's going to assist the Israeli military in delineating between civilian targets. For me, what, and I you know I have friends in the Israeli Defense Forces, 
they will be issuing these kinds of directives to their soldiers to be able to distinguish to the maximum extent possible but they're also going to be very focused on maintaining their own safety. So those things, it, there's no easy way to go about this. And it's the perception of threat, that which constitutes a threat, uh, is those things that, that, that they're going to use deadly force on. You're going to be staying with us for the next hour, but I want to ask you one more question now. You talked about sort of the vertical component to urban warfare. You have uh, buildings with multiple stories, obviously, um, but there's another part to that vertical element, uh, tunnels. Uh, Apparently, Hamas has a very sophisticated uh, network of tunnels, and I think they have said, you know, we are in there, we're going to use them, we're going to be able to come out behind some of the Israeli forces when it comes to that and and fire from from behind the lines, I guess, or both sides of the lines, I guess. And so, you know, let's talk a little bit about that, about the, the what, what, what the tunnels for Hamas, how that increases the, the degree of difficulty and danger for the Israeli forces. It, this is like compiling one complicating factor on top of another. You know, the short distances in the urban environment for all the engagements mean that your standoff weapons, you're, instead of engaging someone at 200 meters, it's going to be around the next corner, uh, which means that a lot of this is very up close and personal. When you add the vertical dimension, and we've layered another thing on this. Hamas has had months, if not years, to prepare for this assault. That means that they're going to have entire buildings booby-trapped for detonation to bring around the ears of civilians and uh, the Israeli forces, and then these tunnels. Uh, the Israelis will use everything at their path. This might be part of the preparation that's ongoing now for them to try and get a sense as to what intelligence they can gather for this tunnel network. Now, let's also be clear what they know and what they don't know. Hamas says they have an extensive tunnel network that might be there to, you know, to, to scare as much as anything else. But I think that it's going to be an all-around battle for the Israeli Defense Forces. There's we can say there's a front line, but really in an urban environment, there almost never is a front line. And that's going to be tough for commanders on the ground. The instant they cross into Gaza, they're going to be surrounded and they have to fight with that mentality. All right, Scott, stand by. You've been kind enough to agree to, to be with us for the next hour. Uh, Scott Clancy is a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces. Lots of time for you to call, either with questions for him or an answer to our show question, which is, how have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? Our number is 1-888-416-8333. Our text number is 226-758-8924. Online and via social media, uh, we are getting lots of reactions. Storm Blakely via Aircheck in Whitehorse says, I'm livid at the media blithely spreading misinformation to whip up anti-Palestinian hate. I'm furious the Palestinians in Gaza and around the world are being abandoned and betrayed by states like Canada, and I stand in solidarity with them. I will say for the record, I've I've been watching our coverage and the notes from our reporters and uh, very closely and uh, definitely not been uh, spreading misinformation in their coverage of, of this story. Robert Thompson on Twitter, or X, I guess, as it's known officially now, I don't know if studies have been done on aspects of the collective psyche being jarred, perhaps forever, by this amount of reported human hatred. I can only speak for my 71 years of news engagement, and this event has taken a heavy toll on my sense 
of hopefulness. I hear versions of that, Robert, from a lot of people. And I do remind you that in about an hour, we'll have our Ask Me Anything with a psychiatrist who can help us all, I think, with some uh, coping mechanisms. And Barry Ewing, connecting with us via air check from Lethbridge, Alberta. We are all impacted. As in most wars, there are and will be atrocities on both sides. Israel said it would allow humanitarian aid if the hostages were released. Okay, let's go to the phone lines now. Nancy Murphy is in Victoria. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Do do you have friends or family affected by this war? Yes, I have a dear friend. Um, Her name is Madeline. Kulab, and she's actually um, the first female fisherwoman in Gaza, and um, her whole family has just fled um, to the south. They were in beach camp, and she's nine months pregnant, and she has three children. And um, we connected because I, I saw this article about her, and we've been um, FaceTime messaging now for two years. And I happen to be a doula, so I help with birth. Hmm. And so I've actually been really supportive of her. She doesn't speak um, English. I don't speak Arabic, but I'm Google is it translates it for us. And I'm I'm hearing from her right this moment. Like every time she has a chance, she asks the host if she can plug in, so she has her battery. Mm-hmm. And, let's let's back um, up for a second, Nancy. So you watched a film about yep. her, and then called the fish out of water. And you reached out to her via Facebook because you were so yep. moved by what you saw. And now you communicate, though she doesn't speak English and you don't speak Arabic. So, so uh, these are in text messages, and you use Google Translate this is Messenger to, to, on mess- Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you go, and wow, that that's a. Uh, complicated uh, communication and so you, and and so what what has she been telling you over the last few days um well it's been very difficult because obviously there's there's no food and uh drink and she's um she's pregnant and she did go to the hospital at Shifa um because she thought she was having labor pains um and the doctor said it wasn't progressing and they had so many other people in line that she would have to go wait in the hallway. But then the 24-hour um, directive and she was too scared to stay. So she said there were buses, small buses that everybody was piling onto. Mm-hmm. So she's managed to make it um, to some a place called Con Yunus. I had to look it up on a, on a map and mm-hmm. it's close to the... Um, the border of Egypt. So they're all just, like she said, they're just trying to stay alive. And she's um, really worried about the baby girl that's inside. Well, because she's not eating or drinking. Let me finish by asking you that, Nancy, as a, as a doula in Victoria, British Columbia, in contact with a pregnant woman who is on the move uh, in Gaza with bombs what, going off around her. What kind of advice can you give her? Um, I tell her that I'm with her. And um, when you give birth, it's really good to have a focal point. And I tell her, you know, just keep seeing my face. You know, focus on that I'm holding hope for you and your baby. And if you can get any sips of juice... Um, cause the baby wasn't moving and it's because of her blood sugar, right? She needs to get something in. 
So she just texted me. Um, someone let them in. There's nine families in um, a house of two rooms, and a store was able to get some biscuits and juice and put it outside, and, like, all these people came in. So they each got a tiny bit, so she's sharing it with her children. All right, Nancy, um, thank you very much for calling us, and uh, and we obviously hope the best to her and uh, this pregnant woman who you're reaching out to and as she mm-hmm. tries to find safety. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Our next caller is uh, in Coburg, Ontario. Uh, Robin Cox is someone who uh, we originally reached out to yesterday. Hi, Robin. Hi, Ian. What's your situation? Um, we were attending a family wedding in Israel and we're supposed to be flying out on the Saturday, um, on which the, the bombs began to fall Mm -hmm. and we could not reach the airport because we were in a shelter in place situation and spent six days with family there in and out of bomb shelters And Robin, it sounds like maybe the line has gone dead. Are you still there? All right. I don't think it has. Uh, Robin, we may be able to uh, reconnect with you. Um, this is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing. We are live, as you can tell, on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and CBC Gem. Our question this week, how are your friends and family affected by the Israel-Hamas war? What questions do you have for our experts? And how can you get on the program? Well, you can call us at 1-888-416-8333 or connect to us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. And you can text us as well, 226-758-8924. So I mentioned we have two experts. We uh, have a military expert who we heard from just a few moments ago, but also someone who has studied the complex politics of the Middle East. And uh, Mira Sukarov is a professor of political science at Carleton University. She specializes in Israeli-Palestinian relations, and she is in Ottawa. Hello. Hello, Ian. So all of this, uh, this conversation, uh, everything that's happening is uh, in the shadow of uh, a ground incursion by Israel into Gaza. They say it's going to happen. We just don't know when. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has called for the complete destruction of Hamas. Um, what do you think motivated the original attack by Hamas, when they must have known that with the the scope of it, the brutality of it, it would unleash a pretty strong reaction from Israel. Yes, they certainly knew that. And so really, they're willing to sacrifice the well-being of their population for their cause. Um, And I mean, there's really, uh, it's very hard to understand why they did it. Of course, they are calling it an act of resistance. And there is some logic to that in that they do have a lot to resist. They do have reasons to want to Uh, pressure Israel to soften the blockade that's been going on since 2007 by air, by sea, uh, and along with Egypt by ground. But certainly this isn't the way to do it strategically and certainly not ethically or morally. It was just an absolutely heinous and savage attack. And so what I really want listeners to think about is really the importance, the crucial need to protect civilians when you're engaging in acts of resistance and now with Israel's military 
strikes on Gaza and its possible ground, its probable ground invasion, how are civilians going to be protected? And this is what we need to, to worry about. Benjamin Netanyahu has already called for, and this is a quote, vengeance. What could that look like? And the other thing is drawing on your, your political analysis, um, what lengths do you think the Israeli government will have to go to from a political standpoint to satisfy those calls for justice or vengeance? As soon as we hear words like vengeance or retribution, which of course is a little bit different from response, when we hear calls for vengeance, it's really about revenge. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be because revenge by definition is unlimited. And in international law and the international laws of war and international humanitarian ethics, we don't have a place for revenge. We understand the emotions and the rage behind it, but there's no way to uh, limit the use of force when revenge is the goal. So we really want to make sure that external actors are pressuring Israel to adhere by, adhere to the laws of war, which means distinguishing between combatants and civilians to the extent possible. And it means using force that is proportional and no more than that to the goals needed. And if the goals are, are, are revenge, then, then all bets are off. We're here live with Mira Sukharov. She's a professor of political science at Carleton University in Ottawa. And our question this week, how have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? And our number is one 416 Professor Sukharov, Iran has warned that <clears throat> if Israel invades Gaza, that could lead to further escalation in the Middle East. This is according to Iran's foreign minister. Um, what's at stake here if Iran gets involved? Well, Iran has every... Uh, incentive not to get directly involved. They can already bask in what they would see as a victory, um, given that their close ally Hamas, who they fund, has managed to shock Israel into this state. And so they, they, we hope, and and there is a likelihood that they won't want to get involved directly through through actual exchange of force with Israel. It won't it won't uh, be a, a positive ending for anyone, uh, neither not least for Iran. All right, uh, Professor Sukharov, I'm sorry, I'm just reading two things here while I'm talking to you. Um, please stand by, and uh, you're one of the two experts we'll have who can provide some context as the program goes on and also uh, answer questions if people have that. So thank you very much. Mira Sukharov is a professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, Robin Cox, who was talking to us from Coburg, Ontario, and then the line went dead. She is back. Uh, hi, Robin. Hello again, Ian. So you were in Israel for a wedding. You were supposed to come back on the day of the Hamas attacks, attacks eight days ago, uh, but that ended up uh, not being possible. So you, you stayed with friends, you were telling us. You had to go down to bomb shelters at various times. Have you ever been in a situation like that before? Um, I've, I lived for several years under military um, rule in, a, in another country, but I have never been in a bomb situation or in an open war situation. Mm-hmm. And how did you eventually get out? Um, we were very lucky, and we uh, managed to leave on a second assisted um, evacuation flight. So it was a Canadian Forces flight that took us from Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, and we flew to Athens, and the following day we came back to Toronto on an Air Canada flight. And and how 
does all of that work? I was kind of curious, uh, and and most of us, I hope, will never be in a situation where we're in a foreign country and and all of a sudden need emergency assistance to get back home like that. Um, how, how how was that handled? How safe did you feel? And how did you even know when your flight was going to be? Um, we registered with the um, ROCA, uh, Registry of Canadians Abroad, and that was, adv- we were advised to do this through the emergency helplines that operated out of Ottawa. Unfortunately, the bomb started to fall on Saturday on the Sabbath, so all of the offices in Israel were closed. Sunday, the embassies and consulates and offices were closed. Monday, they were closed because it was Canadian Thanksgiving. Hmm. Um, I think halfway through the day, the embassy did open for in-person appointments, and we were on the telephone. We were trying to find help. We spoke to the emergency line in Ottawa several times a day, every day, um, over a few days, um, we learned through family and friends that the Canadian government was going to mount an evacuation, and um, we continued continued to call until we reached someone who told us that we could get on a flight. Must have felt great when you finally sat down on that plane. It was wonderful, and it was a very special and unusual flight because our son celebrated his 21st birthday on the evacuation flight. A birthday he will never forget. Robin, thank you very much for calling us. Thank you. How have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? What questions do you have? That's what we're talking about this week on Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing, live in Vancouver on CBC News Network and CBC Radio and CBC Gem as well. 1-888-416-8333 is the quickest way you can get on the program. You can also contact us by cbc.ca slash aircheck. Let's go to Heather Elidi, who is in Kelowna, British Columbia. Hi, Heather. Hi, Ian. You have relatives in the Gaza Strip. Uh, how are they doing? Um, right now, they're okay. They're in a building um, just south of Wadi Gaza, so they're in the area that did not need to be evacuated. Um, I lost touch with them for several days because, as you know, there's no electricity in Gaza. Um, they managed to find someone with a solar panel and were able to charge their phone through the solar panel. Um, there is no water left. They told me this morning they have no water, no drinking water. This is very urgent. It's a very urgent situation. They need humanitarian aid to be allowed into Gaza. And Israel is blocking all the humanitarian aid. They're blocking it from the crossings with Israel, and they're also blocking it from entering from the Rafah crossing uh, the Palestinians want um, they they want humanitarian aid to enter, and you can understand this by the you know they're they're willing to let the the foreign nationals leave if, if humanitarian aid is allowed in, but it's Israel that's blocking the humanitarian aid from coming in, and they need fuel in that humanitarian aid because fuel is what 
allows the water to be pumped to the homes. Unless there is fuel, the water pumping stations won't work and people will not have water. And this is really urgent. It's 2.3 million people, civilians in the, palace, in, in the Gaza Strip, and they do not have water. And it will be days before this becomes a complete massacre because people can't survive without water. Well, so I'm, that's one of the things, uh, sorry to jump in, Heather, but that is one of the things yeah. that I've wondered about of, of all the, you know, after air, like you need, you need water regularly. Um, and so if, if your relatives have run out of water, what are they doing? It, it's, it's all the, it's all the Gaza Strip. So the, they don't have access to water. They have some uh, reserves like filling up bottles and just have the bottles that they, they have left. But when that runs out, it's gone. And they have to ration now so that people are drinking, they're drinking like, um, you know, 500 milliliters per day when you need like two liters a day to survive. And so, they're, they're and so what, what's next for your, your family members who are in Gaza? What are they going to, have they found a place that they're staying and hoping that they can stay safe? Or what do you think the next few days will bring for them? I mean, this question is really frustrating because we're, we're telling everybody, we're telling, we're trying to tell the, the media and the politicians there's nothing they can do. There's nowhere they can go. That's it. They, the water they have is the water they have. The place they are is, is where they're staying. There's nowhere to go. There's no one helping them. I, I, I don't want to think about the next few days. Something needs to happen today. Something needs to change today. And it's really too late. With the, the Canadian government has uh, issued this statement saying that everyone needs to abide by international humanitarian law and international human rights law, and it came the day the taps went dry. It didn't come five days ago when Israel said, we're blocking all food, all water, all fuel. It came the day that we know they don't have many days left before people start dying of desiccation, of thirst. It's too late. It's too late. I'm so ashamed of our government for waiting so long to speak up for the Palestinian people. If you've ever wondered how horrible atrocities like the Holocaust happen with the whole world watching, this is how. This is how. People are watching this happen in Gaza. It's a difficult situation. I, there's no words of comfort I have for you. I, I, what can I, you know, but I, I appreciate you saying what you have, Heather, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's an important perspective to hear. Uh, so thank you. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. Let's go to our next call now. Uh, caller is in Winnipeg. Renee Billauer is uh, on the line. Hi, Renee. Hi there. Uh, you have family in Israel, I think. Well, actually, I, I do. I have a lot of family. Um, I have one sister there and her one of her daughters. Um, I have a, a cousin, a, a first cousin, and then we have some more distant cousins. Um, I have, uh, well, my sister and I were both married to Israel. Mm-hmm. So um, our children... I'm either, you know, half Israeli, and my, yeah. my nieces and nephews are as well. Yeah, and let me just and, jump in, uh, Renee. Like, uh, are you are you staying in, in touch with them? How are they doing? Yes, well, they're very stressed out, um, you know, as as of my uh, husband's family. Uh, it's been very hard on everybody. Um, 
you know, they, they just are horrified by that massacre that occurred last weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister is a neonatal nurse. The babies in her unit, they had to move them to a different section of the hospital. Um, one of the nurses there, her son was killed, and uh, they've also accepted a lot of injured uh, people in that hospital. Um, my uh, my niece who lives, one of my nieces in Toronto, she, she's had a couple of her friends were killed. So, you know, it's just been very, very uh, stressful on, on everybody. Yeah, so, uh, of course most stressful on them, being right in the middle of all of this. But I'm also curious what it's like for you to be so far away and to know your relatives are going through this. Right. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, I I mourn with the whole Jewish commun- community. Um, my ex-mother-in-law is a Holocaust survivor, and uh, she's super devastated about this. But it, it is very hard being so far away. And being uh, to a point helpless, you know, we've we've done a lot of video chatting and just checking up how they are, um, but we don't want to add to their stress. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the most uh, the Jewish community is is trying to in the diaspora is trying to rally together, um, having solidarity rallies. There was a memorial uh, service today and um, contributing money. To um, Israel, I, I do want to say though that um, even though it's been very hard for us, I, I do sympathize with the uh, uh, the civilians in Gaza. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I you know I'm glad that they're not now um, allowed to get water. I hope that they can get food soon, and I hope that they can the various players can work out the um, humanitarian corridor that is supposed to yeah. be happening. Yes. But uh, I don't think it's fair to um, to blame Israel. Like Hamas needs I, to I be need, wiped out. I, I'm, I need to jump out of here, not because of the content, Renee, but we are about to sign off for the viewers who are watching on CBC News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive. Like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup, live on CBC Radio, CBC News Explore, and the CBC Listen app. We have roughly 30 minutes left in our main topic. On our Ask Me Anything segment today, we're going to continue our conversation on what's happening in Israel and Gaza. We'll be joined by a psychiatrist, and our focus will be on how you are coping with uh, the steady stream of, of news, the burden of, of this story. And, uh, and, and he has some interesting advice for people uh, no magic solutions, but certainly advice on how to deal with all of this. So he'll be our guest with Ask Me Anything. He is a board-certified psychiatrist and a board-certified child psychiatrist. So he is uh, more than willing to answer questions about also uh, giving advice for kids. You can actually call us now with questions for the AMA, and we'll put you in the queue, one 416 8333 You can also text us. That number is 226 758 
So those numbers are uh, also the numbers we can use for the next half hour to answer this question. How have your friends and family been affected by the Israel-Hamas war? And what questions do you have for our experts? One of those experts is Scott Clancy. He's a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces, 37-year career as a pilot. Um, and he is with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And Scott, let's bring you back into the conversation. Is there anything that you heard in the last half hour on the program from callers that that you want to respond to? Well, I think, uh, Ian, it's very important to uh, note that there's passion on both sides of this conflict. There has been for, you know, decades and decades and decades, a resolution of the Palestinian-Israeli issue has, has been at a center point of the of a huge problem in, inside the Middle East, obviously, and that Canadians feel passionate for one side or another is indicative of how passionate Canadians are for the protection of life and the respect for the rule of law. I think it's important to underline that it's Hamas that broke that rule of law, you know, very carefully and deliberately at this moment you know crossed into the border and and slaughtered innocent civilians and the excuse of well it's been decades of oppression by israel around gaza i i don't think that characterization uh, you know it holds a lot of water in terms of root causes for conflict but it doesn't necessarily hold a lot of water in terms of you know that justifies doing that in this moment and there's a lot of, you know, thinking around this in terms of where the Israeli defense forces are going to go with the end state. Uh, I think we have to look forward to where they want to be. And I think that's why the pause is there. I think that's why the water is flowing. Uh, well, it has to have some, as we've heard, you know, fuel to be able to flow in. But I think there's going to be a humanitarian corridor that's going to be opened up. And I think this is because Israel's looking towards where they have to be at the end. They can't create an even more dangerous population around Gaza, even more support for Hamas by their military action. They have to go in and resolve this. You served in Afghanistan, right? I I never uh, served in Afghanistan. I uh, prepared forces uh, for support into Afghanistan. Okay. Um, but, I, you know, I think of, you know, it's true in so many places in the world, but I think Afghanistan is something that Canada had a, a close connection to. Um, you know, it's, it's and, and it speaks to what you're saying here with Israel and Gaza. There is the the immediate military conflict, but I assume that military planners have to be thinking about the long-term strategy as well. And when you hear, even on this program, how polarized the views are, how passionate they are, and Chris Brown an hour ago was telling us about what he heard firsthand in the occupied West Bank as opposed to Jerusalem. Do you worry at all about what the next few months or years will bring after emotions have been inflamed so much in the last few days? Absolutely. So, you know, my initial contacts with uh, my friends that are in and around the area region and are serving there were to the tune of the clocks have been rolled back decades. Uh, and I think that's really very telling. I mean, in the the old thinking with respect to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was that until you resolved it, there can be norm normalization of relationships, especially between the Arab world and Israel. But over time, the nations surrounding Israel and even in the Middle East have proven that wrong, whether it's, you know, Egypt, Jordan, and then the Abraham uh, Accords that were signed a couple of years ago with the UAE and Bahrain. We're starting to see movement forward. Things in the last five years, economic uh, 
trade between the UAE and Jordan and Israel on levels that were unprecedented and perhaps even a normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia that was perhaps being brokered by Jordan in the future. All of this now is being rolled back. Uh, unprecedented uh, you know, level of violence in the West Bank, I think, is what is going to be the new normal. Uh, and we watch very carefully widening of the conflict whether it's Hezbollah, which is you know Iran's proxy locally, widening of the conflict within the Middle East or even globally. So I think that I worry significantly about this, which is why you see from the U.S. perspective, you know, Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken moving very, very, very actively around the region to try and maintain a, a level of relations so that we can get through this conflict. Israel has to guarantee its safety but then there's got to be a solution for the Palestinians on the tail end. Scott, I'll come back to you uh, at least a couple more times this half hour. So thank you very much for that. Scott Clancy is a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces, where he served as a tactical helicopter pilot and eventually served as director of operations for NORAD. Our other expert is Mira Sukarov, who's a professor of political science at Carleton University and uh, uh, Mira, I'm going to come to you in just a moment, but I'm going to take a call first. You may actually um, want to reflect on on what the caller has to say. Rob Brownridge is uh, in Vancouver. Hi, Rob. Hi, Ian. Um, so do you have friends or family affected by this uh, this war? No, I do not. Um, but, uh, you know, since my childhood in the 80s, this has been, I'd say, the conflict in the world that's gotten the most news coverage by far. Um, so I've seen it play out just from the news over the years. My question for an expert is, um, and maybe this is a naive view, um, you know, like books such as uh, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, uh, focuses so much on diplomacy, on making your enemy your friend to avoid war. And kind of on that note, there's the phrase, kill them with kindness. Um, and I've often wondered, like, what if Israel really tried to create a Palestinian state and or uh, give a lot of aid to Palestine, not have these, uh, the Palestinian people not have these blockades? It sounds like for years, you know, there's such tight control of movement of goods in and out. Um, they don't have any agency. It seems that Israel is, uh, you know, has a view Hamas is could be anywhere I'm sure I'm going to assume like most humans the majority of Palestinians aren't fans of violence and don't want to wipe Jews off the map I think this is a small extreme group but Israel's response is to kind of treat the entire region in this way and I feel like that's never going to resolve things because it's yeah. going to breed um, people um, you know animosity and hatred and okay um, so that's my question. You like, yeah. what if Israel took a longer term view and like, let's wear down support by Hamas through being kind, as opposed to taking this high security approach? Yeah. Okay, Rob. Thank you very much uh, for your call and your question. And I do think that Professor Mira Sukarov is the, the perfect person to go to now and uh, ask her about that. So, what about Rob's question? Uh, you know, kindness as opposed to the the military iron fist. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I mean, one thing to think about is even using the term war or thinking about books and early war theorists is that this isn't an interstate war. This isn't a war between two independent states with a recognized international border whereby one state is crossing that border. So whereas supporters of many supporters of Palestinians view Hamas's incursion into Israel 
as a way of legitimately returning to lands from which they were expelled and breaking through what they think of as an open-air prison, Israelis think of as an incursion into their country. So first of all, we have to realize that there's a power asymmetry and the border is not fixed and there are land claims dating back to 1948 and earlier Remember that the majority of citizens of, or the majority of residents of Gaza are descendants of Palestinian refugees from 1948. So that's the first thing to think about. Now, the caller was talking about kindness. And I think, of course, kindness is a wonderful term. And I, I mean, I like to think of it in terms of compassion and in terms of what do individuals and groups need. And right now, um, other callers have pointed out to the lack of basic resources in Gaza. There's an indiv- very... Um, frightening a humanitarian crisis whereas in, where whereby individuals basic needs food water fuel are not being met uh, israelis basic needs on saturday october 7th were violated to an extent unimaginable by israelis before that uh, when hamas militants came in and massacred in cold blood uh nearly 1,300 Israelis, most by far most of them civilians. And so I think, yes, we have to think about compassion. We have to think about protecting civilians. And we do have to think about the broader context going forward, especially about how to end the occupation of the West Bank, how to end the blockade of Gaza, how to think about refugee rights. You know, you you, you did talk about uh, what happened uh, last Saturday, late Friday here in our time in Canada. But I just wondered if earlier in your answer, and you know, you 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 know your file. It's a measured answer. I totally understand what you're saying. But I wonder if somebody just turning on the radio, hearing you describe this as an incursion by Hamas, as you know, the sort of historical land claims, um, you know that angering them and saying, you know, this was a a, a violent, bloody attack. There were so many innocent civilians who were slaughtered in Israel. And there is no way, I I feel like a lot of people would say, particularly in Israel, that this can be um, met with anything except anger and vengeance and defiance. Um, how How do you climb down from that, do you think? I agree with those. I agree with that. I mean, I, I agree, okay. I agree that the attack by Hamas is completely unjustified. Nothing justifies massacring civilians. Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's completely wrong. It's completely beyond any ethics, any laws. Um, it's a war crime. It's a crime against humanity. It's absolutely unacceptable. And I, I would add. I just want to add a couple things to that right sure, now. Sure. One is that there's been a very disappointing set of responses from official uh, communiques from various Palestine solidarity organizations, various unions, some of which have since edited their statements, I think um, probably wisely. And I think this has given uh, people like me who have sided with the progressive movement, who have sided with Palestine solidarity rights for many decades, have given us pause in terms of who we can count on to fight for what's right. Um, so I do want to I do want to say that in in no uncertain terms. Uh, so in terms of Israel's response, so in that I've said earlier on in the show, I know people come in and tune out and mm-hmm. come in at different points, but yeah. revenge is not an acceptable way to conduct a response. Um, I think Israel attempting to root out Hamas is a legitimate response. I don't think it's altogether realistic, um, given that Hamas is a political movement and you can kill all its leaders, both political and military, but you will still have um, people coming 
coming up and wanting to join that movement because they feel that's their only hope. So I don't think it's entirely realistic. But most importantly, civilians must be spared to the extent possible. There are laws of war for these purposes that uh, require civilians to be distinguished from combatants and that require what's called the principle of proportionality, which is that the force used cannot exceed, should not exceed the military objectives uh, that are being sought. I oh, and I want to, can I, yep. Ian, also say one you more sure thing can. that I've been thinking sure about? You sure can. Um, I've, I've, I laud CBC for inviting callers to talk about how they're personally affected. And I just want to note that experts, so-called, like if I, if I am that one, I'm very <laughs> honored to be called that. We also have personal ties and I have many friends and family, very close family in Israel who have gone through um, the trauma of their lives and, and I doubt will never fully psychologically recover, though I think they're phys- they physically will recover. I have very, very close family who were, who were in a sealed room hearing militants outside their house. They narrowly escaped hostage taking. I have a friend who is a hostage right now in Gaza. I also have a friend who's a Gazan Palestinian who I've been texting. And, you know, I I don't want to kind of burn her battery down. I don't want her to have to respond just to tell me that she's okay because I know her her electricity is very limited. As of last night, she is still alive, but she's she's not okay. You know, she's alive, but she's not okay. So we also are personally affected. And I just think we all, as Canadians, all have to realize that we go through these moments with very degrees of personal connection, as well as a more detached analytical frame. I'm really glad that you said all the things you said there, because as you pointed out, not everybody listens to the entire program. But to that last point, just makes me admire even more your ability to step back from all of those uh, personal connections and be analytical and, and you are, and that's why you are an expert and we have you on the show. So thank you. And I will come back to you as well, uh, before the end of this half hour, but I will go to the phone lines right now. Our number is one 416 on cross country checkup. CBC.ca slash air check is another way to reach us. And Toby Trumpeter is in North York, Ontario. Hi, Toby. Hi. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. You, I see in the notes here, have family and close friends in Israel. How are they doing? Oh, well, (laughs) um, everybody's shocked and kind of holding their breath and praying that, um, that somehow, you know, that their near near ones and dear ones will not be the unfortunate ones that w- would have to fall. And somehow we're all praying for a miracle, but, you know, we know it's going to be uh, a, a bitter conflict. And I know I have friends also whose sons have been called up into the Army, and I can't even imagine what that's like for, for a mother to know uh, that her son is is going in to try to, you know, to defend the country, but at great personal risk. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the questions I've been asking people who have called in with connections to Gaza or Israel, as you have, um, is how has this been for you? Oh, it's been horrific. I mean, you know, when I... When I first heard about it, I was still observing um, the Jewish holiday of... uh, uh, it was Simchat Torah, and they timed it exactly, you know, to to ruin um, one of the most joyous days on the Jewish calendar. 
And I was shocked, and I burst into tears, and that was before I even heard the details of how absolutely brutal and sadistic the, the, the butchers, how they treated people, and that's what I think that it's not coming across in, uh, you know, the polite conversation that takes place on the CBC, but, you know, it, this was... This was there's no there's no words. It's not just you know. I can't believe that your your the professor that was just speaking was talking about an incursion into Israel to try to take back lands. My God, you know they went they went with one purpose and that was to massacre as many people and to make people suffer. They they took their time and made efforts to torture little infants, tore apart. Babies. I'm sorry to say this on the air, but no, it's it's no. okay. But but to be fair, Toby, you know the the professor also made it very clear that this was a war crime. That it, I, I don't have the words exactly that she used, but she could not have used stronger terms to uh, to to say how uh, terrible what happened was. Right. So in fact, I asked her a follow up because I knew that. There was a potential that if somebody heard that sentence about an incursion out of context, they they may not realize the wider context. So so I, I just want to well, be fair to her. I like like her. If you take her comments in their totality, it's pretty clear that well, uh, I heard her. I heard her walk that back. I did, but at the same time, I think there's this, you know, this kid glove treatment that people are giving to what's happened and. I think that we have to to absolutely make note of the bestiality that took place. And this is the kind of thing that takes those of us, you know, who grow up children of Holocaust survivors, takes us right back to, you know, the Einsatzgruppen and the concentration camps, the death camps. You know, my father was a Holocaust survivor. My mother narrowly escaped the Nazis. And... Those of us who are, you know, of that generation are being re-traumatized all over again. Yeah, you know, you know the, I, one of the I, one of the huge challenges here, though, Toby. I don't know how much of the show you listen to, but I think of the caller from Kelowna, I think it was, who has relatives in Gaza, and and she had the same level of emotion and frustration in her voice. And what she said was, "What's happening to people she knows of in Gaza, and and the lack of what she feels is an appropriate." international outcry is is you know akin to allowing a genocide to go on so i mean okay. it's you okay. know so i i loathe and abhor the the fact that it, that civilians have been killed will be killed it it absolutely you know rips my heart that that is something that is unfortunately unavoidable but you cannot ask Jewish people to give up our lives so that they can live, so that they can take back Palestine. They don't want to have, you know, limited areas. They've been offered peace agreements how many times? They want everything back and they want to drive the Jews back into the sea. So if it's a situation of us or them, well, excuse me, but I don't have to sacrifice my life and my people for for them. Okay, Toby, thank you very much for calling. One of the reasons, I mean, this this is, you know, the the biggest story of the week. And, and by story, I just mean that, that, you know, this issue is something that so many of us have spent so much time 
from a news perspective, covering from a consumer of news perspective, watching and listening to um, – it's inevitable a program like this would get into kind of a debate about, uh, you know, policy and and uh, what's happening in the Middle East. But one of the reasons we decided to sort of take this direction was to hear people talking about their personal stories, about their connection to people in Israel and Gaza. And uh, But, I mean, obviously this is so emotional and so complicated. Uh, I want to take a look at some of uh, the reaction we've received Online, uh, Jan Slakov emailed us from uh, Van and the British Columbia. The parents of my sister-in-law were on the once beautiful kibbutz where so much carnage took place. My f- the father was killed. We don't know the exact circumstances as it's too painful to ask. The hatred being expressed is so painful in the face of this, using a horror like the Hamas attack to justify further horror sickens me. Raman Mohammed texts us from Toronto, was in a Tim Horton, spoke up to clarify, not all Palestinians are supporters of Hamas. My heritage is Indian. I'm a Muslim. And I was told I look Middle Eastern, scared to talk about the issues to strangers in Canada. Susan Bernstein uh, via air check from Calgary says, I think it's really important to talk about the many, many Jewish people from all over the world who support Israel, but don't support the policies of this government. The horrors of last week's terrorist attack were weaponized. You can support Israel and not support what's about to happen in Gaza. A reminder, our AMA is going to be with a psychiatrist who's also a child psychiatrist. Uh, He'll be with us in about 10 minutes time to answer whatever questions you have about how to deal with, with the burden of this story, how to deal with the anxiety, the guilt perhaps of, of being relative, well, being safe and secure in Canada while this goes on in Israel and Gaza, or how to talk to children about it. You can start calling now with your AMA questions, 1-888-416-8333, or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. You can also text questions, 226-758-8924. Uh, let's go to the phones now. Cindy E.K. is in Windsor, Ontario. Hi, Cindy. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, you have a question, and I think it would be a great question to put to uh, to one of our experts. Why don't you uh, t- tell us what that question is? Yeah, so I, uh, as I, as everyone else is calling, is Canadian, and uh, Justin Trudeau has sort of backed uh, Israel, sort of denouncing what has happened, uh, you know, just very recently, but as someone who, you know, supports things like Doctors Without Borders, they have denounced what um, Israel plans and is currently doing as as horrendous, and they say that the indiscriminate violence and collective punishment in Gaza must cease. And so I think it's very weird to be a Canadian, someone who you know, as we have land acknowledgments of whose land we're on, or, you know, we have all these discussions about, you know, what Canada's places in the global world and Roman as offering humanitarian aid. Meanwhile, we have doctors without borders, you know, um, you know, saying that the, the like, obviously, the masculine by Hamas is terrible, but also how Israel plans to proceed and treat Palestinians in Gaza is also horrible. And that they are asking money to help people because without electricity or clean water, mm-hmm. they there's only going to be further harm. There's only going to be further detriment to these people and their quality of life. And after the bombing of their homes, where where are they supposed to go afterwards? So to have Canada be seen as this 
this force of good of, of humanitarian aid and Justin Trudeau done to back Israel, but then have Dr. Salaf orders saying that what Israel is doing is wrong. I think for many Canadians, it's it's very okay. interesting, to, to say the least. All right. Uh, Cindy, thank you very much for calling. Uh, let's go to uh, Mira Sukarov, who is a professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, Mira, I guess, first of all, Maybe I'll rephrase because it wasn't exactly a question there, but so maybe I'll phrase uh, or create a question like this, which is you talked about the importance of proportionality in a response to an attack, that the attack on Israel by Hamas was, you know, terrible, was uh, was a war crime as you described it. Um, and so there is justification for a response. How do we measure um, sort of how far that response should go? It's very difficult. Just to reiterate, I called it an incursion, which is, as I understand it, a synonym for an invasion Mm -hmm. or an attack. And at other times, I typically refer in the last week have called it a massacre. So Hamas's attacks against Israeli civilians were a war crime, a crime against humanity a heinous attack, an appalling attack, and nothing, absolutely nothing justifies what Hamas did last Saturday, October 7th. Mm -hmm. So I just want to reiterate that, and I'm just wondering why uh, the word incursion created confusion, because it's a synonym for an attack or an invasion. Yeah, and let me just Um, jump in and say you're absolutely right. Incursion, it's a word we've been using on the news. I used it on Friday. There was just something at that moment that made me think that people might hear that and not knowing, as I say, the full context of who you are and what you've said, uh, they might misunderstand it. So I'm glad we had a chance to to clarify that. And that caller was really emotional. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Incursion does not imply anything other than it's a synonym for invasion. So fair enough. Yeah. And thank you, Ian, for for helping us get clear, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to talk to each other in ways that we all understand. And that's so important right now in this moment. So um, proportionality. So proportionality is one of the two major laws of war that we need to watch out for here. The first is distinction. That means distinguishing against combatants and civilians. Distinguishing against combatants and civilians is very hard to do in Gaza. It's very hard to do in an urban area. It's very hard to do when Hamas are what are known as unlawful combatants. Hamas is not a state, recognized state military. They don't wear uniforms. It's very hard to know who Hamas militants are at any given moment. And so many uh, Palestinian civilians are going to be killed. um, And and that is tragic. Proportionality means how much force you need to use in order to achieve your military gains, in, in order to achieve your military objectives, rather, and not using more than that. And which is why in uh, our current, in, in contemporary, in modern, in modern times, we've outlawed the use of nuclear weapons, for example, chemical weapons, um, we, biological weapons. They're indiscriminate and they're, uh, they, they kill too many people relative to what's needed. So it's going to be very difficult for Israel to maintain a proportional response. And I'm frankly very worried by statements out of the Israeli government that call for revenge and that call for vengeance. And I'm very worried about the general conflation between Hamas uh, leaders, Hamas militants, Hamas operatives, and the everyday Palestinian population. Let's leave that there. Um, I, I want to thank you very much. It is not easy to uh, to be on live radio uh, as people call in, especially in a topic as superheated as this one. And you've done a fantastic job. I've enjoyed listening to you and your analysis 
is uh, is you know you're obviously somebody as I say who knows your file really well and uh, and I hope and I think this is true most people who are listening to this show will have heard what you've said and uh, will will remember it in context so uh, Professor Sukarov thank you very much thank you for having me Mira Sukarov a professor of political science at Carleton University she specializes in Israeli-Palestinian relations and we reached her in Ottawa. And our other expert, Scott Clancy, retired Major General in the Canadian Armed Forces. Let's go back to you. And uh, we have about 90 seconds left. And how about a last comment from you on either things you've heard in the program or where we're at right now with Israel getting ready for what they say will be a ground invasion or incursion into Gaza? Uh, Ian, I, I think that I'd like to follow up on what Mira said. I think her approach and her look at this from an academic perspective was balanced, and I appreciate her comments on both sides. I think that she's very well informed with respect to the laws of armed conflict and the dominant features that uh, you know are going to drive whether or not Israelis' response is in the right vein, that proportionality and distinction. In terms of distinction, though, and, and proportionality, I have to remember this isn't just about total casualties. The Israeli Defense Force are going to be going after Hamas, and they're well justified to go after those targets. At each point, though, Hamas is masking their targets amongst the civilian population. So from a proportionality point of view, they still have to attack those targets in order to get after Hamas. So they're justified in terms of its distinction. Now, because those targets lose their protection, it's very difficult to continue to go after military targets when they're held amongst the civilian population, and they're going to garner how much collateral damage that they're willing to accept in each instance. But they're going to garner it on each instance that's how targeting is done and uh the last thing is I'd, I'd like my shout out personally to both the palestinian but especially the jewish communities uh, inside of canada uh, it's a horrible situation to have and all we wish for in canada is peace and you know i think that we're going to see in the coming months how we can get to a more long-lasting peace i think you and i are going to be having a chat again later tonight uh, on the national scott thank you very much for giving us an hour on a sunday afternoon you're very welcome thank you very much for having me scott clancy is a retired major general in the canadian armed forces and he spoke to us from Coburg. it's time for ask me anything about your mental health coping with the israel hamas news coverage Fresh video has emerged of one of those horrifying massacres last Saturday. It is particularly challenging for so many of us in Canada who have lived through traumatic episodes in in the past. School leaders across the country have been urging parents to consider deleting TikTok and Instagram off their children's phones, at least for the time being. Our primary job is to gain mastery over our own emotional brain. So many Canadians are feeling anxious as they watch the events unfold in Israel and Gaza. We're bombarded with devastating images and video coming out of the region as we try to sort out which sources we can trust. It can be difficult for many of us to step away from the TV or put down our phones as we are waiting for constant updates. So today's Ask Me Anything is about how to cope with the news and the emotional toll it takes on us. Dr. Javid Sukara is a psychiatrist. He studied and lived in London, Ontario, and currently he is the chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. He's here live to take your calls and answer questions. You can ask him anything on this topic. You can call us at one 888 416 
You can also text us at 226-758-8924. Dr. Sakara, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. So with this conflict, with these images, with even without even seeing them, hearing about horrible things that either have happened or allegedly happened, depending on what the source is, how does this affect people's mental health? It undoubtedly takes a toll, especially when there are communities that have experienced trauma historically uh, and related to their identity. Then it hits even deeper. But the constant bombardment of stories of harm and pain and violence and fear, um, it is actually quite normal for that to affect us. Uh, it's normal for it to affect our mental health. And the past week has been a real marathon in terms of trying to cope every day, going to work or going to school while knowing that there's so much hurt and harm happening around the world and being subjected to the images and stories uh, has been quite painful. And I I guess this is true of anything when it comes to mental health. Uh, These things, even though we are all been subjected to more or less the same stream of information and pictures, um, it affects us very differently from person to person. It does. And I think that's part of why it's important to remember that in terms of dealing with our mental health, there really is no one size fits all. The way that someone might feel because they're, for example, the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, or if someone has family in Gaza, it's going to hit at a different level because we're going to relate to what's happening in the world in a way where we often project sometimes our worst fears and anxieties. But that's also why um, there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to coping. Each of us might have a unique way to deal, and there's no real one, one path to healing. We're here live with Dr. Javid Sukara. He's the chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. Before that, he was in London, Ontario. And uh, in a few minutes, I'll go to phone lines to take your calls on our Ask Me Anything about how to cope with the troubling news from Israel and Gaza. Our phone number is 1-888-416-8333, or you can text us at 226-758-8924. Dr. Sukara, one thing I think is, is difficult, it's difficult for me to an extent, and I think for maybe other people as well, is this is an important story to know the details of. And so on the one hand, I, I, I think, you know, I need to be plugged into what's going on and, and reading about it and watching it. At the same time, you know, that gets to a point where, where it's too much. How, how do we figure out at what point to, to turn things off? So I think we have to remember each of us has the ability and the agency to set our own boundaries in a way that fits. For some people, that might be completely shutting everything off and trying not to be exposed. Uh, But to folks like you or I, it's going to be about trying to make the most of what's going on and staying connected without getting bombarded. And so I think part of the challenge then is being able to notice when our consumption of global events is getting to a point where we're numbing ourselves to it or where we're noticing that it's leading to emotions that leave a residue uh, that that have an effect on other things. When we notice that about ourselves and how we're consuming things and take breaks, take pauses, things like taking certain apps off of our devices or trying to set times where we will be with family or around others, then we can be more conscious and consume what we're seeing in a much more mindful instead of mindless way. 
you have expertise in dealing with children as well as adults. And, uh, and, and I assume that with children, not only do you have individuals being different from other individuals, but you have, you know, depending on where you are at as a child in your stage of development, that's very different too. So I'll ask the question broadly, but you can answer it more specifically. What do you say to parents, caregivers, about how to deal with their children over this story and, and fears that their kids may have? So I really think that there's three golden rules when it comes to talking to and working with kids. The first is to take care of ourselves. As adults, we have to recognize that we're vulnerable to a lot of emotions. We need to take time to connect with that process, our own grief, and not to project them into children's lives or worlds to take care to deal with our our feelings before we jump into conversations with kids. But the second is to remember that the best thing we can do is to let kids lead. We can validate how they're feeling. We can help them reframe and simplify and understand and make sense of things that are complicated or scary. And the third rule is to really role model hope and faith and vulnerability. It's to let kids know that they are loved, that they're okay, that they're safe, that there are ways that we can deal with how we're feeling but that this moment isn't going to last forever. And it does vary based on developmental stage. Really young kids, they're not going to make sense of anything, really. So we want to limit what they're exposed to unless they're asking us questions. Older kids, they're going to think in a much more concrete way about good versus bad and being very mindful of digital and social media messages and stories they're consuming while checking in and creating space. And then with older kids, it's really encouraging them to name and understand different emotional states, but also allowing them to understand that there are ways, healthy ways, to validate how they're feeling, uh, that there may not be a way to fix that feeling, but there is a way to feel it, appreciate it, validate it, and also not let it take over. It's a very comforting answer. Just the tone of your voice is very comforting. We're talking to Dr. Javid Sukara, who is the chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. And you can ask him anything about how to cope with the news, how to know when to turn off or maybe even the guilt of turning off sometimes and enjoying yourself while you know that this uh, very dangerous situation continues to unfold in Israel and Gaza. Uh, You can call us with your questions at 1-888-416-8333 or text us at 226-758-8924. Jacqueline Waugh is uh, calling us from Regina. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi there. How are you doing with all of the news and and the stream of information we're getting here? Well, I I think it's hard to cope as an adult, but um, I'm a teacher of a classroom of five, six students. And I guess my major concern is... um, is how to how to get them um, in a space where they're respecting each other, and um, in grades five and six, you're sort of at that level, as previously described by your guest, where you're going from that right wrong thinking to that abstract thinking, and I was wondering if your guest had any tips for um, how to walk students through that situation when they're at that age, because what we're definitely seeing is kids coming to school that perhaps um, parents and guardians aren't aware, are fully aware of what's going on there because they are hearing about it on the bus or they're hearing about it on the playground, or unfortunately they've seen something on Instagram and TikTok that is highly disturbing to them. So what do we do start 
grade five and six and upwards to help these students in um, in an atmosphere where we're we're a school or we're a classroom. Yeah, um, that Jacqueline, might be different from the individual approach. Yeah, Jacqueline, that's a great question. And stay on the line because uh, Dr. Sukara may want to come back and and discuss this with you. But but, Doctor, what would you say to Jacqueline? So the first thing I would say is thank you, Jacqueline, for being a teacher and an educator. The role that you play at a time like this can feel really heavy, but it's so, so important in helping to shape and co-create space for kids to be able to understand what's happening, but also understand how it might relate to where they are and what they're doing. You're right that the 5-6 split, that age group, is very tricky. Some kids are more nuanced and some kids are more concrete. Now, I I can't replace what any specific school guidance would be, but I can say that ultimately what it's about is helping everybody recognize their relationship with each other as a class, as a team, a team who's there together with a purpose to acquire knowledge and deepen our understanding of what's happening, um, not only about the world, but about ourselves and how we might relate to it. The best way that I can think of that as an educator myself is it really is about co-creating space. And I think teachers like yourself are so gifted at being able to do this intrinsically. Co-creating a learning space to ask questions, to deepen understanding, to validate how people are feeling, but also recognize that sometimes there might be complex things that seem like they're in conflict or tension with one another that are okay to coexist. Um, Kids of that age, by learning and understanding ambivalence and being able to be comfortable with ambivalence, ultimately will have a healthier way of coping with such strong uh, circumstances, but also strong and uncertain emotions that this might evoke. Jacqueline, any follow-up question or comment? Um, No, that's actually great, the idea of, um, you know, making them feel comfortable that sometimes there there is no right or wrong way to feel, but that sometimes there are situations that are in the middle. Um, that is great. Thank you very much. All right, Jacqueline, thank you very much for your call. We are live here on our Ask Me Anything with Dr. Javid Sakara. He's a chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. And before that, he was in London, Ontario, and he is here to answer questions you may have about how to deal with the burden, I guess, the anxiety, the uh, negative feelings that a lot of people are having uh, during this very, very difficult week of news from Gaza and Israel. Uh, Ali Maltz is in Toronto. Hi, Ali. Hi. Thanks for calling in. Um, you have family in Israel. What? Uh, what? What's your question for the doctor? Yeah. Hi, Doctor Sakara and Ian. I'm big, big fan. Uh, Yeah, my name is Ali, and I have family in Israel, and I'm Jewish, and I feel like, you know, a lot of people are reaching out to me, and it's just in the ethos of conversation right now, but I don't really want to talk about it, and the reason why I don't want to talk about it with people is because, A, I don't know what opinions will hurt me right now, and I don't really know what I think at this point, but as a Jew... I feel expected to give some sort of rational and logical reaction to people um, when they're checking and asking. And I, I just, I'm having trouble dealing with that. 
Yeah, I, I I love that question because it's actually something I've thought about before too, um, with friends who uh, I think have a connection to what's going on that's more than my connection. I mean, we all have a connection mm-hmm. in, in humanity, but and and then I think, well, geez, I don't want to presume anything, and I certainly don't want to put anybody on the spot. So this, this is a great question, and let's uh, let's bring Doctor Sukara into this. How how do we navigate this, Doctor Sukara? So thanks so much, Ali, for for giving voice to a lot of people who might be experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. What's important to remember is that you get to be the author of your own story. When events like this happen, there's a lot that happens in the world, and there's a lot of weight that many of us feel like we have to carry. Mm-hmm. What I would say is it's okay for you, it's entirely okay for you to not really want to have to talk about anything specific or nonspecific at all. Different people cope in different ways. And to be self-protective, the way that you described, can actually be very healthy and very adaptive. So you can give yourself permission. You can validate yourself that that's okay. You don't have to and never should feel like you need to carry the weight of your community or of the world on your shoulders. You were never meant to do that, especially not alone. You get to decide, you get to be the author of your story, and the way that you're connected to, to this, this unfolding um, uh, situation is going to be personal, and it's going to be unique, and it might be very different from other people, even people that you're close to. That's totally okay. Uh, you don't have to feel like you need to fit into one narrative or the other. Uh, and I think a lot of us who are feeling like there's groupthink or pressure or polarized discourse and just want some time to to be self-protective, that should be validated that that's an okay way to cope. Ali, any follow-up? Yeah, a thought and a question, I guess, first. Um, it, that's helpful because I think from the Jewish community, there's also pressure to speak, um, even if we're not comfortable to do so. So it's helpful, that sort of validation but also just wondering, um, you know, I will be in situations where I'll be in the discourse, um, you know, people are talking about it in restaurants and groups of friends and all these things. And, you know, is it okay? Or how, I, I guess just nicely the thing to say is I'm just not ready to talk about it. I don't know. How would you navigate just wanting to shut off a conversation? That's obviously a really important thing to happen. That's happening in the world right now. So I think what you described is absolutely an okay way to deal with it if that's what your heart and mind is feeling in that moment. Um, Being part of a Jewish community, you get to define your relationship with your identity and how that relates to everything that's happening. I think we all, um, myself included, have, have different identities, different ways that we relate to things that might be happening in the world. And they don't always fit exactly neatly into Mm -hmm. the boxes or the spaces that might be um, what people are saying or talking about. So when I said earlier that you get to be the author of your own story, I think that's a really important Mm -hmm. um, maxim because no one else can author your narrative for you. Your narrative is yours. You're the captain of your ship. You're able to define your relationship with your identity in a way that validates you, that feels healthy, and recognize that you might connect to that identity in ways that varies from others, and that that's okay. Diversity within our faith communities, within 
or religious and ethnic communities is actually absolutely normal uh, and generally can be very healthy. Ali, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. Bye. Dr. Sukara, a, a follow-up to that. So what advice do you have for somebody who um, wants to reach out to a friend um, because, you, you, and this is a situation I've been in, you think to yourself, you know, I, I think that friend probably is feeling the weight of this more than I am. I feel they have a connection to it, maybe because of their faith or more, not just their faith, but, you know, they've spent time either in Gaza or, or Israel. Should we reach out? How, how do we reach out? So the, I think that's a decision each of us have to make based on how we're feeling and, and what we feel is the right thing to do. Ultimately, it's really hard to go wrong to, to reach out with a message of love and support. A lot of what's happening right now is people don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. And so saying, hey, I just wanted to say I care. I'm here. I may not have the words, um, but you matter. It's, it's a really just simple but validating message. Uh, most people who experience tragedy really appreciate anybody near or far who reaches out with a message of love and support. Uh, where it can go wrong is when we try to say too much, we try to interject too much, or we try to to do something to fix the way someone's feeling. Sometimes it's just about sitting with them in that space and saying, I don't even know what to say, but I'm just really grateful uh, for you and that you matter. Hmm, good advice. We may have time to to have a couple more calls here on Cross Country Checkup with our expert, Dr. Sukara, talking. He's a psychiatrist and uh, able to answer your questions about how you've been feeling with the news from Israel and Gaza, how you can best cope with that, what advice you can give other people, including children. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. Paul Bennett is calling from Powell River, British Columbia. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ian. Thanks for, ha- thanks for taking my call. Yeah, well, thanks for can calling me. Can you hear me, me all right? Absolutely, we can. Yeah, so actually my question is very similar to, the, to what just has been discussed and shared right now. I'm, I'm, one, I'm trying to navigate this in my own friend group. And, um, you know, I have friends that, um, you know, obviously have a multiplicity of perspectives and feelings around this, this subject. And... And I've been trying my best to just sort of like reach out and offer support by just listening um, and learning because I'm not a, I'm obviously, I'm not a geopolitical expert. Um, and one thing that I am noticing is that I like, I guess the people pleasing side of me is trying to bring friends together or wanting to bring friends together that I can see this sort of division with amongst my friend groups sort of starting to happen. And I'm not sure like, I guess I, th- I think I've been taking it on too much and I'm not sure how, like, I, I don't, I'm hearing that it's not really my responsibility to do that, but I'm just wondering if there's, if, if the doctor has any suggestions for people that are, are witnessing this happening within their own friend group, like what, what's the best way to approach this? Yeah. Stay on the line, Paul, Dr. Sakara. So I appreciate how you're feeling. And I think it's important to remember that when it feels like the world is on fire, we can't always be firefighters. I can appreciate your empathy, your sensitivity, your instinct to want to to bring people together, but there are conflicts and times uh, like these where we really just can't fix everything that's happening around us. Part of the instinct comes from wanting to help, wanting to care, wanting to do something. And that's where I think that the advice is to 
relieve ourselves of having to carry the burden of everything that's happening in the world and simply focus on being present and being attuned and being supportive. There's a lot that we might say or do that people might not be ready for, but ultimately it is a lot of emotional work to try to carry um, the kinds of, of uh, emotions and hurt and pain that, that are happening. And for folks like yourself or even myself in helping professions, all that we can do is do our very best to be present, uh, to create space, but not take on uh, the heaviness that this situation is creating. Paul, any uh, follow-up? No, that's uh, that's really good advice, and it's really good to to hear it um, and to remind myself of that because I'm that's how I feel, and and I feel like I can be supportive of friends that disagree and and equally. So yeah, it's good to hear. But I just need to sort of step back in terms of not letting my myself try and carry the weight of what they're they're experiencing. Yeah, but to try to bring people together and help your friends, Paul, obviously good instincts and good luck uh, with that. And thank you very much for calling. Thank you very much for taking my call. Dr. Sakara, we have about three minutes left. It'll go pretty quickly. And I want to read a, a question from a caller in Toronto, Michelle. She asks, how do I comfort and reassure my Jewish children who go to a Jewish school who've been asking if they should remove their uh, mezuzah, which apparently is a religious item that uh, Jewish households put on their front door, if they should remove that from their front door. So that's her question. I assume it's uh, a question about safety. Are we safe to have that kind of visible Jewish um, symbol on our door? What do you say to, what should she say to her children? So first of all, Michelle, my heart is with you. I appreciate the way that you're feeling. Uh, I have a Muslim faith background. I've lived in Israel, and I know the pain that you're feeling uh, when when these are questions that are being asked, because they're questions I've had to answer for my own children. At a time like this, you and your faith and your relationship with your identity uh, should be one of transcendence and hope. You can affirm to your children that they have every right, uh, it is a birthright, to be who they are authentically, without fear, and without hesitation. There may be things that the world might throw at them or at you, but you and your children uh, must know that they are the ones that get to decide how to be themselves and that they deserve a world that affirms them for who they are. Fear is a common emotion. We all know it. It's a universal emotion. But at a time like this, uh, I would say very, very um, candidly, it really is about being deliberate and unafraid to live our values and to bring as much light and hope uh, and support to one another as we can. We have about a minute left. Uh, I'll go beyond Michelle's question. Uh, the synagogue around the corner from my home has had a police cruiser in front of it since uh, Saturday morning of last week. And I just feel like that is such a sim- It's a symbol of many things, but to, to a kid, you know, it might be a symbol of danger, uh, that this perception that there's danger here, that's why the police have to be here to protect us. Um, so, I mean, if there is danger out there, how do you how do you balance that? And as I say, we have about a minute left in giving a, a child reassurance and yet reassurance in an environment where there is truly some danger. Well, we know we can't protect our kids from danger all day, every day. 
But what we can do is reinforce the feeling of being safe and loved. And at a time like this, the presence of a police car outside of school, as heartbreaking as it is that we're even talking about it, um, it's okay for us to remind our kids that scary things might be happening, but they're safe, they're loved, and the police are here to make sure that they are safe. It's an extra precaution to support them and to make sure that they uh, aren't in danger. Kids may and will face danger from all sorts of different sources. So by teaching them that it's okay to deal with it, that there's ways in which we can maintain our safety, uh, we can help them not feel like they're constantly afraid and also teach them specific and concrete ways to keep themselves safe should they encounter any potential dangers. That is such a reassuring message, such a constructive one and delivered so nicely. Dr. Sukara, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Javid Sukara is a psychiatrist and chief of psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. That's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from October 15th, 2023. If you want to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to all who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Katrina McGaughy, Hannah Abrahamsey, and Alexa DeFrancesco. Special thanks to the team at Ontario Today. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Josh Raxa, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wilson. Our program assistant is Kiata Greco. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Planner, Steve Howard, and Kate Helmore. Our digital producer is Paul Hanchia. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard. And I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.